Hey guys, how you doing? Welcome back to the podcast, episode 103. Can you hear the cicadas and the crickets singing? A rare and different tune. Anyway, I uh, figured I'd open with a uh, singing bowl. Reminds me of my old friend Crosby. It was his birthday last week up in heaven. So, or hell. <laughs> depending uh, depending on what, what David Crosby... Uh, you want to celebrate. But anyway, he was a good dude uh, at the end of the day, and I miss him. So uh, I figured I'd break out the singing bowl, and I couldn't improve upon the sound of those cicadas. I don't know if you can hear it, but it's just amazing. And uh, it's a great part of this time of year, and it's like an energetic kind of vibrational thing that I thought of the uh, singing bowl. I've told you this story before, but Crosby and I, well, I was on tour with, with Crosby, Stills & Nash. I was the road manager, and he called me one morning in my hotel room in France and said, get down here. I found an incredible old, you know, music shop. We got to go check it out. It was Lyon, and it was down by the river, and I met him in the lobby and went down to the shop, and they had, like, instruments from this 18th century. I mean, they just had, like, really old stuff, like predating guitars and lutes and all kinds of, you know, ouds and just amazing stuff you know a, a, a picker's dream not just in terms of player but like collector so we were freaking out and he got a crystal singing bowl that was huge and he and Jan collected singing bowls and, and I remember he just got this thing that was just massive you know and had it shipped home so uh, I hope they're ringing him in his memory so let's get into it another crazy week Trump got indicted yet again in Georgia Lots of fanfare, lots of breathless coverage. He turns himself in this week. He's going to stretch it out till Thursday or Friday to get the maximum potential uh, of a, you know, a news hit out of it. And he's a master at it. And it's not even like MSM isn't playing along. You know, they're the seals. He's the ball. And they promised to bounce him on, on their noses, you know. MSNBC did a special last night on the upcoming debate. I don't know if they still aired it, but their plans had been like a Republican debate prep panel on Sunday night, which is just, you know, they mean well, and they're obviously covering, you know, the heinousness from which of which like these, you know, Republicans are campaigning, but you're, you're only feeding the beast, right? You're only making them more famous and more popular, you know, this... Ram Swamy guy, I, I can't, I don't know how to say his name. I'd never heard of the guy before three weeks ago, and now he's in every article as this upstart. And every time he says a crazy thing, it's breathlessly like retweeted now. And we've seen that pattern over and over. That's how we got Marjorie Taylor Greene. Nobody had heard of her before January 6th. She was a freshman, you know, and she started tweeting videos of her in her hotel room working out and bitching about they couldn't have any guns and she had to work out in her hotel room because D.C. was a, you know, fascist state under, you know, COVID protocols. And then she just kept up with that approach. She sort of instinctually understood the news cycle and how to stay on top of it. And she's been there ever since. And she's probably the most prominent Republican at this point besides Donald Trump. And she, you know, arguably wields more power than Kevin McCarthy, who's so anemic and, and 
squirrely and slimy that I don't think anybody respects him. And he's clearly just in it for his own, you know, quaffing. <laughs> so my point is, like, we can't keep feeding the beast. There's real things happening. You know, I, I want to tell younger people, not that any of them listen to this <laughs> podcast, but uh, there was a time when what had happened in Maui would be nonstop coverage, okay? Anderson Cooper would be there in person interviewing the victims, you know, letting people express their grief and trying to sort of humanize the tragedy and bring it home to viewers. That's what CNN in particular you know, put them on the map, put Anderson on the map, certainly after Katrina. And, uh, you know, it was the kind of coverage, especially in the summer, that just would have been running wall to wall in any newsroom. And now it's barely mentioned, you know, I mean, it, it's in the news. Don't get me wrong, but it's not like on the ground coverage in the way it once was, because it's cheaper and easier to do a panel on Trump and do some Zoom calls every day with the same people you talked to yesterday. It's real cheap to produce, real low quality. <laughs> you know, I get sick of hearing somebody talking in their, you know, kitchen and, and, you know, Adams Morgan. Go to her studio, put on a microphone. But anyway, uh, that that's the recipe now. And they're not going to turn back from that. There's too much cash. It costs zero to produce. It gets, you know, tons of ratings and people can't look away and... You know, I'm in that boat. I'm not I'm not judging them. I'm in the same predicament. I'm talking about Trump every week. I'm so sick of talking about that guy. Like, that's why I don't even do these podcasts that often anymore. Because, like, I know what the psychic damage is going to feel like after speaking about him for an hour, <laughs> you know? And, and I certainly don't want to repeat myself. And a lot of what we see on social media is just people repeating what they hear other people say and what gets a lot of tweets and likes and whatever the hell, you know, it's just a scam because people are grifting and making money and smash the like button if you want to, you know, hate Trump and, and reelect Biden and all these scams that a lot of these younger people are learning in social media, you know, it's paying off. So they're all addicted to this chaos, but I don't think it's doing us any favors as a people, right? Because Twitter's broken. We saw that yesterday with the Hurricane Hillary, like there was a time with Twitter a year ago. You, you'd have a disaster and you'd be able to go on Twitter and figure out what was going on in real time with accurate sort of man on the street reporting by people uploading what they saw. And now that wasn't the case. Yesterday you'd log on, it'd be some crypto bro with a blue check putting a three-year-old video of sea lions out calling them seals and saying like, the seals are running out of the ocean or whatever. It's like, was complete bullshit old clip, but people were falling for it and it was impossible to find the real news services. You could eventually figure out a weather service in San Diego or something, but you had to wade through crap that you didn't want to be looking at, you know, and nobody should have to be looking at, but that was the predominant thing that was presented to you on Twitter because that's what Elon wanted to happen to Twitter. He didn't want it to be a useful way to disseminate information, especially about climate change disasters, because he's not the environmentalist he pretends to be. You know, he's an opportunist and a scammer with a bent towards authoritarianism, right? And that's a dangerous thing. And it's especially a dangerous thing to rely on in an election year, you know, in a, in a time where we have catastrophe after catastrophe. It, it's dangerous. And, and I think Yesterday was a good example of like 
how we could really be screwed in the next election if we're coming to rely on Twitter in the same way. Because you're going to go to check it. It's not going to be there. He's going to take it offline, you know, after some Republican declares, you know, the election invalid and there's just be chaos. So it's a good time to wean yourself off of that particular site. And especially in light of, you know, there was some great reporting. Ronan Farrow did a great piece in The New Yorker. It just hit this morning. I subscribe to The New Yorker and I I collect them and I'm I'm behind. You know, I always have a big stack. But the uh, the important articles you can always find online. You can find it without a paywall. And it was a deep dive on Elon Musk. And it's a deeper dive than Walter Isaacson's going to be genetically capable of doing. <laughs> I don't know if you know about that, but he's trying to write a book and he's the master of the hagiography, you know, you know, pumping up great men kind of myth creator. And he's clearly in a pickle because Elon Musk is anything but a great man. And I think Walter probably knows that, but he's, you know, writing this book. But I, I think basically he got beaten to the punch by uh, Ronan Farrow this morning. And Ronan's piece is excellent. And, and, you know, if you don't have time to read it, you should, but the big takeaway is like, he's a Putin fanboy, as I always said, you know, I always believe that Elon's motivation in taking over Twitter when he did was because of the emerging atrocities that the Russians were committing in Ukraine and how bad that was going to look for Putin strategically on a world scale. I mean, they were raping children. They're doing all kinds of heinous things a year ago that they're still doing. You're just not hearing about as much, right? You're not seeing all the Ukrainian, pro-Ukrainian sort of accounts that we saw in the early days of the war. Elon took it over and he ixnayed all that stuff and, you know, squashed it, whatever the term is, and you didn't hear about it as much. So they go into very detailed reporting about how the Pentagon had to call up Elon Musk because he had basically pulled Starlink access, which was the Wi-Fi service that SpaceX provided the Ukrainian troops and that they were using on the battlefield to you know, defend themselves. And he basically pulled their Wi-Fi because he got sick of paying for it. And he was worried about how it was going to look to Putin, that he was helping the Ukrainians. So he pulled it in the Pentagon briefly, and the Pentagon had to call him up. you know. And this U.S. official had to sit in his hotel room in Paris and call Elon Musk and kiss his ass like he would Trump. You know, He had to understand the guy's kind of an idiot. But he had to puff him up and kiss his ass and try to get him to do the right thing on the world stage. So that right there is a nightmare scenario, you know, that we're relying on somebody like Elon Musk. Who cares what he thinks about geopolitical situations, let alone having his business involved intimately with strategic defense of a nation is a nightmare scenario. Right. And, and we're knee deep in it. The only the only way. We get astronauts into space these days is through SpaceX, you know, and Garrett Reisman, a former astronaut, you know, I've known for a long time. He was the director of SpaceX operations and he left and he's a good dude, but and I haven't talked to him in a long time, but I dated his younger sister and his family was very important to me when I was younger, you know, and he's a smart, bright guy. So there's smart, bright guys at SpaceX, but it's being run by an idiot who, who's sort of gotten himself involved with our government in a way that we're over a barrel, you know? SpaceX, 
Tesla, none of these companies would exist without our subsidies, without subsidies, without the without the federal government's subsidization of his companies. But he acts like he's this megalomaniac who can do whatever he wants and he doesn't answer to a board or a Pentagon official or anybody. And in the result of this reporting where they're talking about this guy having to make a call at three in the morning, he has a conversation with Elon Musk and Musk reveals that he's spoken with Putin and he takes him at his word as a man who wants peace. You know, does that remind you of George W. Bush or Donald Trump or all these other idiots that get conned by Putin? Because Putin's not stupid, right? Putin's a KGB agent. He knows how to appeal to narcissists, especially Western narcissist right because that's what the kgb train these guys to do you know there's a certain personality trait that comes with capitalism and the outsides egos outsized egos that get created in capitalism and elon's like textbook that kind of guy as is donald trump putin's a judo master so he played these guys like a fiddle and the problem is now we have to manipulate these dudes in a way to get the democratic, you know, sort of pro-democracy objectives through in our government. And, and that's just, that's insane to think of my grandfathers, you know, who spent their lives in the intelligence agencies. Like, I'm glad they're both dead. Not, you know, I miss them, but I'm glad they're not alive to see what's become of our foreign policy when it comes to somebody like Elon Musk, because the dude's a Bond villain. He's a threat. You know, he's a threat to democracy. He's a threat to freedom. He's a chaos agent, agent, and he's made unusable. You know, this platform that was very effective. It was very effective during COVID, you know, during the, the, the tumult and the sort of apex of the Trump years and all the chaos and George Floyd protests and all that stuff. Twitter was the bomb. Right. It was where you found out what was going on is where you could instantly three see through the bullshit that Trump was feeding people. It's where he got mocked for his ridiculous press conferences. You know, it, it, it's where sanity sort of reigned and put into stark relief the idiocy of the right. But if you mess that up, if you start mixing up the waters and churning the waters with crypto bots and spam and Joe Rogan friends and contrary and libertarian white dudes and all the other, you know, idiots that can arise on Twitter, you got a problem. And that's what we have now. We have a problem. We have a big toxic social media network that everybody's sort of addicted to. If you need to make money, it's still the only place you can get much of a reach. You know, threads exist. The other ones are pretty much a joke post is nice and polite the blue sky thing is like got 400 people and it's all jeff tidereich <laughs> talking to them it's like 400 people saying they hate him and then him responding to everybody and he gave me a pass to the site and i set it up but it was just it's it's a joke so the threads is, is your best bet i would move towards that hope that they improve their blocking features you can't block and hide somebody which is annoying because you, you can either block them or you can leave their comment up. And if you get sort of spammed by bots and Nazis and all that stuff, it, it can get pretty ugly pretty quick, which is why I turn off my comments. But my point is we got to figure something out, you know, because we're sort of walking into a trap with this kind of stuff. And we're in a world where disasters are happening every day. You know, there's man-made 
you know, disasters that climate change is causing, the fires in Maui, the fires in Canada, the hurricanes, you know, where they don't belong, the hurricanes where they're going to belong, you know, in Florida, where they're gearing up for hurricane season again and they haven't rebuilt after Ian because their governor has been flying around the country setting up golf dates you know, with benefactors and trying to run for president, even though he doesn't have a fucking chance in hell. <laughs> Sorry to curse. You know, we got bad stuff happening everywhere. We got a kid in New York City, you know, a young man, a dancer, beautiful dancer who was out there celebrating with his friends, dancing to Beyonce in a parking lot. And he was murdered, stabbed to death, you know, because somebody came up to him and said a bunch of homophobic slurs and he didn't back down got in a fight and the guy stabbed him in the chest a beautiful light a beautiful dancer if you haven't seen his work he's incredible you know just coming up you know we need talent like that on this planet you know that's a heartbreaking situation and now it's bookended with the shopkeeper you know this woman who owned i think one of the shops was in studio city that i've been to and she had another shop and Indian Lake or Eagle Lake. I don't know the name. I'm not a Californian, but like, you know, I'm sure you've heard the story at this point. She had a pride flag outside of her business and some guy came by and gave her a bunch of grief about the pride flag. And she argued with him and he shot her in the head and she died. And then cops chased him and he died. And and, and she apparently kept putting up pride flags because people in that community would tear them down. This is not in the Studio City location. It's the other one, which I assume is like a resort area. But, um, you know, what? What are you talking about? It's 2023. What the hell is wrong with LGBTQ rights? You know, my mom's a lesbian. I grew up with, you know, around perfectly loving, normal relationships. It doesn't matter if you have two parents of the same sex. You're lucky to have two parents who love you. If you have one parent, you're lucky to have that. You know, if you have anything like that resembles love in your life, it's not for anybody to judge and there's nothing wrong with it, you know, and and the people that even promote this hate know that, you know, Donald Trump deep down is not really homophobic. OK, he, he's not. I'm not saying he's a good dude. It's just it's not that foreign to him and his family and his kids and stuff. If you know what I mean, he's not he's not like growing up in Bible Belt, Texas, okay? He's from New York City, used to hang out at Studio 54, okay? The dude is doing it because it's convenient, which makes it even more disgusting. It's like Jared Kushner knowing Trump is an anti-Semite because he is an anti-Semite. He is horribly racist, you know, and he would use the N-word out loud, loud all the time and say disparaging things about Jewish people all the time. And Jared knew that shit, but Jared wanted to, you know, rule the world and jared's you know knee deep in with netanyahu as was charles kushner so the whole family comes from the sort of mobbed up corrupt side of politics and trump's obviously born out of italian mob associations and then you know made his way to the big leagues in the russian mob you know with the help of rudy giuliani who's now is indicted co-conspirator in georgia which is very ironic if you followed giuliani's case with Rico Law and all the bullshit he tried to sell people about becoming America's mayor and all this crap, which was just lazy reporting. He he was a horrible mayor in New York City. He was not popular at all. And 
9-11 was such a cataclysmic event. People were so exhausted. George W. Bush was not like capable of the kind of leadership you needed in the hours immediately after. So he was disappeared in some, you know, Air Force base in North Dakota or something. And there was Rudy giving a press conference and being reassuring because you needed an adult to kind of step forward and, you know, Rudy was the guy in that moment, so he was oddly reassuring to people, and everyone felt it, and media just went with the narrative, you know, that he was America's mayor. But, it was, you know, the reality was not any – was not, that was not the reality. It was just an easy thing to do at a time where people were shocked and overworked and stuff, and it stuck. And he exploited it for years and made a tons of money off it. And I, I told you guys this story before, but I did the 9-11 memorials forever i did them from you know the the 2003 probably till when they opened the museum was my last one and we had five presidents come and i used to work in the vip tent so my job would be like handling the dignitaries that came to read out names hillary clinton or whatever and giuliani would come most years and he would show up smiling in this tent like and not smiling like a polite smile of comfort to greet an old friend like beaming like glad handing and working the room because he was like these are my people i'm mr 9-11 here you go it was like about him and that's the vibe he gave off which was so disgusting because you're looking at children who've lost their parents who are about to get up and read a name and i watched those kids do it at four and five years old you know as toddlers and i've i, I did it long enough that those guys were now like in their teens and it was horrible to think of the lives that were lost and the people that didn't get to see their children grow up and to see this wrinkled old drunk show up and walk into the tent like it's a fucking party year after year. You know, I lived across the street from Gracie Mansion when 9-11 happened and they told us that the air was safe to breathe. It wasn't safe to breathe. And I would look down the window every night at Rudy coming home in his motorcade and he would get out of his black SUV and he'd be wearing a mask. And I remember thinking like, something's not right here because everybody knew the air wasn't safe to breathe. And if you know that part of New York city, that's East end Avenue, it's on the East river, right by hell's gate. So there's a couple currents that run in the river and there's a walk, like, there's like a wind, you know, like a jet stream, but wind and it would change every night, right? At like three in the morning, the winds would shift and the winds would come from downtown, right? From down ground zero. And it was a nice fall. So we'd go to sleep with the windows open. And at three in the morning, you'd wake up and the whole apartment would be full of this acrid black smoke that smelled like computers and paper and diesel fuel and human beings. Like it was just, it was a, it was a warlike stench. You know, it was something you weren't used to smelling in a city. And there was, you know, your only thought was like, no way can this be good for you, you know? And I got friends who worked on the pit, first responders and cops and stuff. And, you know, they all got lung diseases and cancer and all this shit. And and they've died in the decades since. And, and Rudy's gotten rich and gotten drunk and helped, you know, his fat buddy from the mob days in New York City try to steal the presidency, you know, so so he could, you know, let his sons son-in-law steal some more money from our treasury while he hangs out on golf courses and tweets all the time you know at a time in our planet when the world is in desperate need of leadership 
and his only political contributions were to appeal to the ignorant racist hordes in America that are just stupefied and too like ignorant and culturally bereft to understand the changes that are happening around them. So it's easier to evolve into screaming eagle tattoos and giant pickup trucks and attacking anything you don't understand as woke and thinking the only thing that matters is your kid's softball game and your ability to mow your lawn in the suburbs. You know, that's who he appealed to. That's who Trump's always appealed to. He always attracted the sort of goomba guys, you know, the kind of people that want to go to Atlantic City and like enter a room that's got cheap fake gold everywhere and think that that's the high life or class, you know, <laughs> it's anything but it's like going on a cruise ship or something, you know, you're at a casino floating on the ocean, you know, there's, there's not much classy about being on a cruise ship. I know people do it, but you know, and no, to each its own. It can be. I did it on the Queen Mary with CSN and we thought it was a fucking nightmare. And that was a nice one. <laughs> so I can't imagine what a carnival cruise is like. And I'm not hating on the people that listen to the show that that's your vacation. Go for it. But it's that, you know, it's that eating at a cafeteria in Vegas kind of style. Like you're not really getting the good stuff. You know, it may say all you can eat crab legs, but what you're getting is not the real thing. And, and it, it was the same way with Trump as a politician. Like what you're getting wasn't the real thing. This whole idea of we need an outsider. You know, we need somebody to shake things up. No, you don't. You don't get on an airplane and say, hey, I don't want a pilot today. I need somebody from outside of trained aviation to guide this thing across the country. This missile <laughs> fueled with, you know, filled with jet fuel and human life. I want somebody who, you know, is going to drain the swamp to take this thing into Cleveland tonight. No, nobody says that. But with politics, they say it because stupid people don't understand how government works, right? A bureaucracy is a wonderful thing when it operates correctly. And DC is full of civil servants that, that, that spend their lives, really, really smart people that could be making a lot of money somewhere else, decide to work on behalf of the greater good. And they apply their expertise to the USDA, to, you know, energy department, to the, you know, EPA, you name it, you know, HHS, all these things that seem boring, you know, GAO, making sure government, you know, runs correctly and pays its bills. It has proper oversight. All these things require work and dedication and dedicated civil servants who are the heroes of our federal government, and they get no respect. You know, and every 10 years or so, some GOP guy runs on the platform of like, I'm going to drain the swamp. They're taking your money and wasting it, giving it to minorities and illegals. Give, wasting what? Giving somebody the bare minimum of unemployment so they don't die? when they're out of work so they can feed their kids. You know, the lack of compassion is the root of that sort of messaging because it only appeals to people who have no empathy, right? If you're an empathetic person, you're going to be like, no, wait a minute. I, I need people to have Medicaid and Medicare. I need people to have, you know, food stamps. I don't want to hear about a child going to sleep hungry or sick or a parent who can't afford to take their kid to the doctor you know, or a school that's not fully funded, that doesn't have books and arts, you know, and, and, and leisure activities and free breakfast and free lunch for the kids, for all kids. You know, Pennsylvania just instituted all kids are going to get a free lunch. I mean, free breakfast. 
this school year. That's progress. You know, if you have a kid who doesn't need it, take that extra money you're saving and, you know, give it to a local food bank or do something good with it down the road, you know, but just include that kind of thing, you know, so the kids who do need it and maybe are ashamed to ask for it don't have to suffer that kind of shame and embarrassment, you know, and I grew up around all that stuff, food insecurity, you know, kids, as you've heard before, relying on, you know, the school to give them breakfast. And then Reagan came in and took away the breakfast. And I remember riding into school with my friends who had breakfast the day before, you know, or the last school year. And now they don't get it. I mean, it was just abject cruelty. And I remember it fourth grade, you know, and a lot of what Trump's appeal was break was bringing that back. That's what make America great again was. He stole the idea from Reagan. That was Reagan's tagline in 1980. And Trump adopted it because he's a great marketer. Say what you want about the guy. He knows how to promote and market himself. And he knew his audience, right? Because he'd been selling to these guys in New York forever, right? From, from his casino days, from his Trump steaks and Trump water and all this Trump branded crap. He knew who the goombas and idiots were up in the suburbs that were going to buy his bullshit. You know, the cops and firemen and, you know, dudes that one-on-one are pretty decent Folks, but when they vote with a block like their union or something, they always skew sort of racist, you know, homophobic, misogynistic kind of like thing. That kitchen table talk that I've covered a lot on this show. He knew that's who he was going for. And he knew Make America Great Again would be a shorthand for, for that kind of attitude. And he knew what the cultural fires were that were going to ignite those people in 2016 through 2020 and now 2023. The difference is seven years into it, we have ladies getting murdered in front of their stores for flying a flag, you know, flying a flat pride flag. I can't talk today. Right. That's the difference. You know, the difference is in Brooklyn, you know, we have young men getting stabbed to death for dancing. You know, for voguing to Beyonce. It's New York City. What are you talking about? Everybody should be voguing. You know, everybody should be dancing. When I see somebody dancing in public, I stop and I look and I smile. That's the only response to watching somebody dance. You know, it's it's a beautiful expression of human nature. You know, it's ethereal and frivolous and filled with delight and joy and can also you know, communicate sorrow. Dance can can speak the, the human language in a way that almost no other art form can. You know, there's a purity to dance that, that doesn't make it simple. You know, it's incredibly complex and it's not easy for a lot of people to appreciate dance. But, you know, and in many ways, it's the highest art form in, in my mind. You know, and I know I'm not explaining that well, but, you know, I love the ballet. And when I got sober... Somebody gave me ballet tickets and I went Lincoln Center and uh, I remember like watching the ballet and like crying, like, you know, because I, I was sort of seeing it, you know, anew with these new, you know, sober kind of eyes where I was feeling everything and I was in the moment and I saw it for the expression of life and beauty that it was. And I was just like, I turned to you know, the person I was with and was like, isn't this the most beautiful thing in the world? 
you know, and she was like, are you nuts? <laughs> like, is this no, you know, because normally I was a rock classic rock guy. And I was like, no, this is incredible. You know what I mean? Because I'd like allowed myself to relax enough to get to that next level where I could receive it, you know, like the teacher appears when you're ready kind of thing. You know, it's the same way with the arts, right? You know, you, you're not going to get into classical music when you're 10 years old, probably, you know, but when you're 50, you're like, hey, you know what? This sounds pretty good. And, and this can this can do something to me that words can't, you know, the strings and all the lush things. So you combine that with dance, you know, with a pretty person, you know, with a great body leaping across the stage, you know, showing athleticism, like sign me up, dude. You know, I want to watch that all day, you know, and even if I don't want to watch that, I don't want to attack it, you know. So what are we doing as a culture where we're training people to think this thing is bad? You know, this person should die because of who they love, you know, and the people that are reacting to this stuff violently. You know, they're monsters, but they're not coming out of a vacuum, right? They're coming out of a society that's saying it's okay to be this way. And they're coming out of rhetoric that is being, you know, promoted endlessly online. This is how I'm going to tie it in with Elon Musk and all this kind of stuff, because they know it's effective, right? They know it works. So they're spewing it to increase their impressions online, to increase increase the clicks they get and it doesn't matter good press or bad press what matters is that they say your name on msnbc and it doesn't even matter if you believe it you know and a lot of them are hateful scumbags that believe it and and obviously christians in the south you know whatever christianity has melded into with the nra down there is virulent and horrible and most of those people are scumbags you know and we see that day after day when they get busted you know, for having sex with some underage kid, you know, while they're calling other people predators, you know. And by the way, I grew up around gay people. I never had anybody even look at me weird who was, you know, was a, a gay friend of my mom. Like it just never happened. And I had plenty of scout leaders, you know, and plenty of church guys and plenty of creepy so-called, you know, Christian, whatever you want to call them, dudes on the DL hit on me my whole life. You know, I mean, look at me, dude. You know, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not saying that like I'm good looking. I'm saying like, you know, I was the kid you were going to you were going to make a move at if you were uh, if you were skewing that way. And it never came from that community. Never even thought of it in that context. And I always worried about in other places where I was vulnerable, you know, because they also pick on vulnerable populations they would come to our neighborhood like pervert guys would come you know i'm 52 right so like video games and video game parlors kind of came out when i was in like late elementary school seventh grade you know it was when you'd have like a mall parking lot would have a video game you know place we'd go in and play pac-man and all that stuff and i remember these dudes would come and like hand out quarters to us kids and be like hey you guys want to go roller skating tonight like we'll bring you roller skating you know and i remember telling other kids like don't do it don't go you know <laughs> like this is not cool these guys are preying on us because i was very street smart because if i i had to be because i was sort of you know 
I was a latchkey kid. It was the seventies. It was different. Like you were going to get eaten up if you didn't uh, watch your back. And I always worry about how many of those kids, you know, bad stuff happened to. But anyway, we never feared that from, from the LGBTQ community. I never saw anybody close to those situations, you know, who had anything to do with that community. So that's all bullshit. And they know it's bullshit when they're saying it. It's just an easy knee-jerk thing because people have a lot of fear and anger and a lot of that base you know, or, or a lot of humanity has been messed with and sexually abused, period, right? And that's a psychological button that you can push. And Putin knows how to push those buttons, you know? That's why they feed the issues that are going to rile up the base. Even though Trump is a sexual predator, he's been convicted, you know, of sexual assault, whatever the proper nomenclature is they're using in the E. Jean Carroll case, he, he's a rapist, you know? However you define those terms, he, he's he's a convicted, you know, sexual predator. And that's one of dozens and dozens of cases. And, you know, I've told you about it many times. I know a girl who was 12 years old taking ice skate rinks, you know, lessons at his rink, ice figure skating, you know, and he started grooming her and she called him her dirty uncle. And then he befriended her and then he invited her to Epstein's and she spent time at Epstein's, you know. And she was somebody who was exploited by a lot of other men as well. And it's a sad story. But, you know, she said to me in discussing it, you wouldn't believe what they did to women and girls in that place, meaning Epstein's townhouse. So that was Trump. You know, Trump didn't hide. That's who he was. When I worked on the beauty pageants, he was the same way. He would brag about walking into the rooms. You've heard him on tape doing that. You know, he would do stuff that would make cameramen grossed out that would go home and tell their wives like you can't believe this dude because a lot of dudes will do that they'll do messed up behavior and they'll look to other guys for sort of you know adulation or you know corroboration in their misogyny and and to their credit a lot of the dudes i worked with in tv weren't playing that and they were like no dude this is disgusting stop it but trump's that kind of guy he's always looking for the ones around him who were given to corruption. That's why he found the Matt Gates, you know, kind of fraternity in D.C., right? He, he found who the scumbags were. They got them all down to the Trump Hotel on a Friday night. They had their orgies and their Coke parties, and they got compromised on half of those dudes. I guarantee it. You know, that Madison Cawthorn dude wasn't <laughs> lying, you know, when he said he was like, you know, invited to the coke parties and the orgies and stuff you know i i, I think he really <laughs> i think he really had been you know because you know dc's like any other industry and even worse in many ways when it comes to that kind of stuff when i worked on capitol hill they would have cocktail parties in in the in the lobbies like at the rayburn office building or something friday night at four o'clock they would have an open bar set up and i, I went to a few of those parties and I've told you this before too, but I used to smoke cigarettes. I was the in-house courier for the Congressional Budget Office. This is like 89. And uh, I would work in the fall and then I would go out to Vail and I was a ski bum for a couple of years and I'd come back and I'd work as a bike messenger like spring through fall. And I did that for a couple of years and I was friends with these pages. You know, this one particular girl who was a page and the page school is on the house side of Capitol Hill. They have a prep school where people come from all over the country and they go to high school and they, they sort of do an internship on Capitol Hill. Wonderful opportunity, cool thing to do. 
you know, and I'm 18 at this point, I look 16, right? So I'm, uh, I looked 14, like, you know, I always looked very young for my age. So I was, you know, hang, you know, I'd sit on the, the steps of the congressional budget office, which is on the Southwest side of Capitol Hill. And I'd smoke cigarettes with this girl, you know, this high school girl, which sounds bad, but she was, you know, waiting to pick up her papers or whatever. So I'd see her every day and we'd smoke cigarettes. And she would tell me these stories that like half of her classmates were sleeping with congressmen. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I thought she was like lying to me, but I later come to find out she was telling the truth. You know, there was debauchery always ran through politics, sex and power and all those worlds collide and ambitious, you know, attractive young people and slimy older men, you know, that that have some purchase over them and know that they're ambitious will exploit that. They'll do it in Hollywood. They'll do it in politics. They'll do it at the hardware store. Let's be honest. Right. A lot of men are wired that way and can't resist it. You know, it's fucked up, but it's true. OK, so Trump knows that he knows the vice that is required to have a business operate the way he operated his business. He did it in New York City with his parties at the plaza and inviting the models that he brought over in Trump model management to come to these parties. And these are teenagers from Eastern Europe, you know, that he was exploiting and bringing to this country with the promise of, you know, a modeling career. And then he'd put them six to a bedroom in an apartment on the Lower East Side and they'd be sleeping in bunk beds with no AC and he'd be making them work off, you know, their fees, their passport fees and their travel and stuff, you know, just scumbag stuff. And he'd make them show up at these parties with other developers, you know, with people who worked in the city who needed permits, you know, who needed to give him permits and all kinds of things. And he'd find out what you like and he'd provide it to you and then he'd blackmail you. And that was Trump's MO forever. It didn't change when he became president. And that's why a lot of his larger crimes, he can't understand why he's in trouble. Right. The shakedown of Zelensky on the phone call. It was a perfect phone call. What are you talking about? The the Raff, Brad Raffensperger call, you know, which is at the heart of his, you know, felony case now in Georgia. Same thing. It was a perfect phone call. I just need to find 11,000 votes. And on Fox News, they're saying, hey, he was just saying, hey, I need to find 11,700 votes. He wasn't saying, give me 11,700. You know what I mean? They're playing semantics. The drunk judge lady, Janine Pirro. <laughs> I heard her saying that in a clip the other day. You know, he was just shooting the breeze with the guy. No, he was shaking him down. And, and, and Brad knew what was happening. That's why he recorded the phone call. You know, he knew who Trump was. Everybody knew who Trump was, you know, except for the people who didn't want to know who Trump was and wanted to believe he was something better. And those people are out there. A poll came out today that, you know, 70 percent of the Trump supporters believe Trump over their own family members. You know, he's created a cult and, and more than a cult, like a religion, which is, you know, you can make an argument that they're one and the same. But, you know, religion in general, uh, appeals to the greater good, right? And, and, it, and it gives you a way to manage your life, right? Quiet your mind and trust God, you know, follow these principles, you know, beginning with treat your neighbor like yourself, take care of your family, you know, you know, have some fidelity about the circumstances around your life and find value in, in enriching 
those things, not the flashy stuff in life, but the, you know, the rock solid things, you know, be a man of peace. All those kind of things can be found in religion. You know, they can also be manipulated and exploited again by men, you know, for their own power and greed. We see a lot of that in the Catholic church, but the, the principles that point towards the truth you can't argue against and and many religions will use the same sort of guidepost to get you to the same place enlightenment you know you know jesus talked about like watch the you know lilies of the field they neither toil nor spin meaning just be present just be here now you know the world is a wonderful place your heart is a wonderland right everything you need is inside of you in many ways and that's a hard concept to understand especially when you're getting barraged or you're being barraged with all these messages about buying things and capitalism and achievement and all this kind of stuff you know i sat out by the pond earlier i was thinking about all this stuff you know i read the new yorker piece on elon i'm all in my angst i'm tweeting you know i'm mad about the crimes i just told you about i'm mad about the climate stuff and you know, I watch this little butterfly and he's sitting in the grass, you know, and it's like I have a bumper crop of baby butterflies because there's four acres that have gone to meadow. We're in late August, so they're just everywhere. It's teeming with life. And uh, I'm watching this baby butterfly and it's like doing this thing, you know, where it's like expanding in the grass. Like you can see its heartbeat, you know, and then it flies over and it lands on my foot. And I don't see it right away. I can just feel it. Like, I just know it's there, you know, and then I lift up my foot and there he is, you know, sitting on my foot. And of all the things I'll do today, I probably won't do anything more important than like paying attention to that butterfly and just watching that butterfly in its beingness. It was a baby monarch with its beautiful wings and it's orange and it's black and it's yellow. And, you know, that baby butterfly is only going to be here for the blink of an eye, right? But he's going to be fully present and fully alive and fully receptive to the love and the sunlight and the water and the food and the bounty of this planet, right? He's not going to be worried about his cable bill or his Wi-Fi access or all of these other things. And you might want to think, okay, well, he's a simple creature. He doesn't have to worry about all this stuff. But what are we, you know? We don't have to worry about all this stuff either. That's not to say we don't have to exist in a society, but we don't have to be manipulated in the way that achievement is only what we own, you know, and what we can collect, right? And how much power we can wield over another human being or another life force, you know? It's all about horsepower and torque with us, speed. You know, for what? You know, we'll never make anything as beautiful as that butterfly, right? But we can aspire to the, the beauty and the presence that it can teach us, you know? And the world is full of that. You just walk outside and there's examples of it everywhere. Miracles. You know, this planet is full of miracles, all kinds of life and flora and fauna and bugs and stars in the sky and all these things, when I was a kid, you know, there was a lot of 
sadness. I cried myself to sleep a lot. You know, my dad left when I was little. I didn't understand a lot that was going on around me. I was moving all the time with my mom. There was chaos. She was an alcoholic. You know, she did her best. It wasn't all bad, but like, you know, there was some tough days, but I always had this sense of joy. I'd go outside and I'd see the blue sky and the clouds and I'd be like, let me at it. You know, that spirit, you know, that's where my sense of humor came from. I was a funny kid because I just had this love and it was how I coped with the world. It was how I made people feel like I was okay. Like everything wasn't going to be terrible because I, you know, I, I saw the adults that were crying a lot around me, you know, you sort of see the hum, the insanity revealed in humanity when you're around a lot of alcohol and drugs when you're a kid, right? Because it brings out people's character defects. So you see that different look in their eye and you know something's not right. And I think a lot of my humor came from a desire to placate that, you know? But there was also a spirit that existed, that exists in all kids and puppies. You know, watch puppies run around and, and lick somebody's face. You know, they're just joy. They're just, they're just happy to be here. You know, when, when I met Stevie Wonder, I've told you the story. If you've seen me live, I tell this story, but, uh, I met Stevie Wonder at, I'd worked with him before, but I had this great interact interaction with him at Barack o, President Obama's first inauguration at this big HBO concert we did on the mall. And the, I don't tell this part in, in, in my set. But the, the thing I talked to him about was this song called Saturn. If you know that song Saturn off, you know, songs in the key of life, it, he's, he's, it's written from the point of view of an alien. And, and, and he didn't write the lyrics. Another guy wrote the lyrics. I forget his name. But I started talking to him about that song because there's such a truth in that song. You know, and the song is basically like, we're high on life, man. You know, being alive is our whole deal. You know, and it's like, I'm going back to Saturn, you know, because he's like, I'm out of here, man. I'm going where where we're sane, you know. And and we we had a discussion about that. And, and you know, that's sort of why he got interested in me a little bit in terms of like, hey, what do you do? You know, you're a songwriter. And th that was the 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 germ of that conversation. And it was us talking about, you know, like it's all inside you already you know there's an old parable about a guy who's sitting by the river anthony DeMello tells this story if you've never experienced anthony DeMello's talks he was a jesuit priest who combined sort of eastern philosophy with catholicism and he did a thing called the way to love which was a great book and it was also a pbs series in the 80s he passed away a long time ago but his work lives on he has another book called awareness very obscure but incredible stuff like if i could tell somebody to read one book it would probably be anthony DeMello. and i as a matter of fact i used to give out copies of the way to love it's a little tiny paper book you know paperback book and for years i would give them out my old sponsor would too we would get them by the case and just give them to people because it's all about loving without attachment you know and that's a common misconception in our society and especially when you're first getting sober you know people tend to gravitate towards like the relationships that have gone wrong in their lives. And, you know, your first sort of relationship and sobriety can always be a disaster, you know, because you put too much weight in it. And then, then they they leave you because you're basically like crazy people, you know, bumping into each other. 
And, and then you're like, oh, I would only, if only she would come back or he would come back, I would be happy, you know, and that's a fool's game. And you're mistaking love, you know, for attachment. And attachment is like, if everybody would just behave a certain way, everything would be fine. And of course, you have no control over how others behave. And real love is saying happiness happens when you're around me. And then when you're gone, the happiness is there too. And I don't want you to change who you are to please me. And, and that's a profound thing to learn. And it's a tough thing to accept, right? Because it, you know, it's easy to say that. It's very, it's a lot harder to feel it, you know, and, and what happens generally, and in my case and experience, you know, you'll be in a relationship and girl will be like, hey, or guy, or whatever, will be like, hey, you want to go see this movie tonight? And actually you don't, right? And you're like, no, I'd rather just go home and watch TV, but you're afraid to say no because you don't want to disappoint the person, you know? So you're like, yeah, you know, I'll go see Mission Impossible or whatever tonight, you know, Barbie. And you don't really want to do it. You start changing who you are to please that person. And, and, and that's always going to lead to impure things, right? In terms of what love really is, because then, then it's going to get, it's not going to be right-sized, Okay. And, and, you know, that's not to say you don't make compromises and have to go to things out of commitment or whatever, you know, it all gets gray, but if you can follow the overarching theme, you'll understand what I'm talking about. You know, there's a difference between attachment, like a fear that if I don't behave a certain way, this person's going to leave me and then I'm really going to be screwed. You know, that's not love, right? That's based in fear and self-doubt and attachment, a need to control somebody else. And that can be a codependent, passive aggressive way to control other people too, which is a whole other, you know, level 401 talk. We'll do it another day. Right. But you get my point ultimately, hopefully, you know, and then when you're completely yourself, you know, that's when the good stuff happens. You know, those times that you did fall in love, the, the person almost feels like they come out of the blue and you're just being yourself and they love you for it. You know, and, and that's the best feeling in the world. Real love is somebody wanting you to be yourself, you know, and I've been lucky enough to find that in my life. You know, somebody who wants me to be the best version of me I can be. Those are the people you want to be around, you know, and that's not always the most successful version. It's the happiest version, right? It's the most fulfilled version. You know, real love wants you to be that butterfly in the grass, you know, undulating. Do you know what I mean? Breathing, just being happy and present and flying around for as long as you can fly around, you know, and smelling the flowers and doing whatever butterflies do. You know, that's real love. That's what, that's what, that's what God's love would be for you, you know, to use a term that's coined, that's loaded, right? But whatever God is to you, you know, that's what you figure God would want, right? You, you, you want, you want other people and things you care about to be happy. You know, a mother wants for their child, their child to have a shot at happiness. And we live in a time where, where one of the political parties is basically designed on denying happiness to other human beings, you know, torturing migrants that are coming across the Rio Grande with underwater saws to catch them and ensnare them. So they drowned in the river, drown in the river when they're trying to bring their kid over to a country where they can get a shot at being in school in September and getting a meal 
and maybe learning how to read a couple books and getting a job when they get out and living up to their potential. Instead, they're being met with violence by evil men who already have more than they'll ever need in their lifetime. You know, Greg Abbott is a wealthy man ever since the oak tree fell on him in River Oaks when he was jogging in a thunderstorm, you know, which is not a smart move to begin with, you know, and he was paralyzed. So he sued the homeowner and the tree service company, got nine million bucks. He still receives an annuity to this day. He was a law school student at the time. He was a young man, right? Got that payout, became Texas a journal, attorney general and took away tort reform or enacted tort reform reform rather at the behest of the insurance you know industry in Texas and they put a cap on future payouts so if somebody had the same sort of thing happen to them that Greg Abbott happened to them they would only get $250,000 going forward not the 9 million right he pulled up the ladder after him you know and he's obviously deeply hurt as a human being you know there's nothing wrong it's the odd beside the obvious physical limitations you know of, of being paralyzed being in a wheelchair but he has just as much right to to live life and there should be access and all kinds of things for them right he's not damaged because of the physical stuff he's damaged because what he feels like inside because he's clearly a sadist and he's clearly pissed off at god and he's clearly trying to punish other people you know and you're watching it play out on a world stage, on a natural national stage. And, and that's compounded, right? That's over and over. It's broken men trying to appeal to other, appeal to other broken people to do their bidding. You know, I'm going to wrap up here in a minute, but like the United States for a long time was always aspirational, even if it was bullshit, you know, for many of us most especially Native Americans and African Americans and any other immigrant that sort of wealthy white people decided they didn't like at the time, which included Irish, included Italian, moves on to Puerto Ricans. Like it's always going up, right? But there's always some other that's coming to take your job and mess with you, right? And those things are always being manipulated by the powers that be because they hope you don't find out who's really screwing you over, right? But that being said, for a long time, the United States was always very aspirational, right? It was the Main Street, Norman Rockwell kind of deal. And even if on the surface, you know, things looked great and underneath it wasn't so great, there was a sense that, you know, opportunities were going to lift all boats. That if you came to this country and worked hard, you'd get an opportunity to have a better life than your parents. You know, that, that was the basic premise of the American dream. And that's been replaced, right? We're, we're now a tear it down nation right on the on the right right that's the political ideology is american carnage it's burning everything up it's destroying it because you don't like it that's a lot different you know than white picket fences you know now it's closed auto parts stores and dudes with tattoos on their necks and fast food joints and guys souping up some crappy pickup truck to sound like the blitzkrieg when it goes down main street that's america now you know, it's it's Mad Max, you know, it's Blade Runner. It's almost po post-apocalyptic to the Norman Rockwell, you know, roots that we began on. And we have to address it because it's a maelstrom that we're all getting pulled into. 
You know, it can't be business as usual in any way. We have to understand what we're up against, you know, and it's an existential threat that you will only mitigate by being incredibly honest, by having complete awareness of what's really going on, where we really came from, where we are still falling short, things like reparations, you know, need to be paid. You you have to do an honest accounting of where we've come from. You have to do a four step, you know, and you have to make your eighth and ninth step. Okay. For the program people, you know what I'm talking about. You got to do it. Otherwise, it's bullshit. And, and that's where we're at as a nation. A lot of it was built on a sort of house of cards that didn't exist. And the people that were entitled to have a certain way of life without any change or acknowledgement of the truth want to have that same thing still. And it's basically impossible. It is impossible. With climate change, it's 100% impossible. But they still have politicians who aren't telling them the truth who aren't, you know, they're not saying to them, hey, dude, you can't ride on your lawnmower all day long. You can't go joyriding in your car. You can't waste fossil fuels. You got to conserve stuff. You know, and if we had people that were appealing to the sense of hard work and ingenuity that is inherent in all of us, okay, we need MAGA on our side eventually. We don't need them to be MAGA, but those people one-on-one, -on -one, we need to change them and get them aligned in serve you know aligned with the idea that like they're protecting their own future and their children's future not by voting for the vitriolic politician but by protecting the planet and nurturing it and changing their ways and we need somebody who can explain that to them in an exciting way because it's an opportunity it's an opportunity to change and expand and if what if people got into competition to see who could conserve the most you know who could find new ways to, to find alternative energy and conserve energy that already exists, to not be wasteful. Inherent in that, there's a mindfulness that'll transform your life. Just by becoming aware of it, it takes on a life of its own. It's like presence. You know, Eckhart Tolle talks about if you take a log and you stick it in a big bonfire, right? And then you pull that log out, it's going to be burning that much brighter from being by the, you know, being in the big fire. It's the same thing with presence. It's the same thing with love. The more you do it, the more it expands and takes on a life of its own. It's like yoga. You know, it's very hard to do in the beginning. I, I was like Mr. Yoga guy for a long time. And I studied with Dhar Dharma Mitra most recently. And then the pandemic hit and I stopped going to classes and I still do a little yoga every day, but nothing like when I was in class for a year and a half. You know, I was in class for a long time, 2008. But um, in the beginning, that stuff is really hard, you know, and you're just like, oh, this hurts. This is terrible. And then you start feeling great right, right away. And then you can't get enough of it. You know, it's the same way with doing the right thing. It's the same way with loving, you know, do an example, like open the door for somebody when you go into the mall the next time or whatever. And they're like, hey, thank you. You know, and it feels good to do that. And then you're like, hey, I'm going to do that again in 20 minutes. I'm going to hit this other person with this courtesy. It feels good. That's our natural state. We're like those puppy dogs. We're like those children who look at the blue sky and smile, you know. And if you see a kid who can't smile because they're hungry or they're tired or they're scared for their parent, you need to have the awareness and the compassion to help those kids. 
not punish them further, right? And any sort of political ideology that doesn't have empathy and caring for others at the root of its philosophy is no bueno, is not a good deal, you know? And say what you want about Biden, I don't know what you'd say bad, you know? But empathy is clearly what's guiding that guy. You know, he's clearly a good dude, you know? He's not perfect. Yeah, he's old. You know, we don't really have a choice right now, <laughs> but his heart's in the right place. And that's what matters, you know, as opposed to somebody who doesn't even have a heart. Okay. So I think that's enough for a Monday afternoon. It's always heavy. I apologize for that here. I didn't, I don't have the music. Um, I don't have a song to play you out with. I'll hit you with this uh, singing bowl again. We'll think of our friend, David Crosby, who's passed on. You know, and, and be loving. Enjoy the rest of the summer. Get out there. Look at the uh, butterflies and the birds and the bees. Enjoy it while you can, folks. Thanks for listening. I love you. Have a good week. Until next time. Peace.